Hello and welcome to Bike Talk. We are a podcast out of KPFK in Los Angeles, California. We are on the air at Valley Free Radio in Florence, Massachusetts. Today we are bringing you an interview with Caltrans, the California Department of Transportation, with our co-host Lindsay Sturman. We are also with Galen Mook the executive director of the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition. Hey there, Nick. Thanks for having me. This interview that's coming up, which you've heard, is about Caltrans' new direction, where their, their new complete streets policy. So do you want to give us your thoughts on this? The complete streets policy is basically an idea where a project that is under the auspice of Caltrans has to look at not just automobile throughput and not just automobile designs, but must take into account walking, biking, and transit accommodations. And if it can't, it's got to say why it can't. And that's a huge policy shift. I think it's a huge um, cultural, mental, fundamental shift of the way that these massive um, highway-driven organizations traditionally need to look in the 21st century about, hey, we're not just for automobiles anymore. And the roads are not just for cars, but for people. So what can we do to really think more completely about who these people are, knowing that obviously not everybody has a car. They can't afford a car, or they aren't of driving age, or they're after driving age, or for some reason they um, choose not to drive a car or can't. Um, We need to find accommodations to have our citizens get where they need to go through transportation, but also get across um, transportation networks safely. Um, How can we actually start to build the infrastructure that changes that? It's cool to see Caltrans taking those big steps. What is somebody listening in Massachusetts, let's say, uh, going to take away from this? For those of us in Massachusetts, as you are, and this is broadcasting out of Florence too. So um, I'm going to say that Massachusetts has complete streets. We've had it for about six or seven years statewide. Uh, It's a different program with the same type of policy shift and the same type of cultural mental shift but done differently here because Massachusetts is a different structure than California. California is a very much county driven and Caltrans driven. So a lot of the projects are just top down. Um, Massachusetts has that where MassDOT also has complete streets in all of its projects. Um, I'm gonna make up a number here, but I'm just gonna throw it out there. I think like only 20% of the state's roads are actually under control of DOT. The other 80% are local. So what this does is it um, gives you know, on the Massachusetts side, the local impetus to build complete streets. Um, Whereas, you know, also MassDOT has a complete streets policy. Caltrans is just the more the top-down model. You know, they're they're basically doing it themselves. I like the Massachusetts model because it teaches, you know, teaches the man how to fish, not just giving them the fish, which in the end, like uh, we have 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts and we need to move the needle in every single one. Um, And what the complete streets policy does here is it gives the local effort that empowerment. It's a little bit of a nuance, but then again, that's just how the money flows um, in these street projects, different, you know, state by state. We're well on our way of revising the policies here of complete streets. Um, And I should also say, give a shout out while I have you, Nick. This is also being up-leveled on a national scale. Massachusetts Senator Markey, um, Ed Markey, put in the Complete Streets Act in the Invest Act as it went through the Senate. So Complete Streets is now a federal ideology as well. And the idea there is if a project is going to receive federal dollars, it has to take complete streets into review just the same. So this is hitting from a local level, 
a state level and a federal level, this, this, this concept is uh, really making its way through. So we're making progress. Uh, yeah, I think relative to where we were yesterday, yeah. Um, and the idea here is like, where will we be tomorrow? And I think this comes across really well in the interview is, are we going to train up new hires in Caltrans? Are we going to build a new department in Caltrans that really institutes this and makes this ingrained within the whole organization so that if there's a change of administration or if there's a change of uh, leadership, that the people who do the grunt work are able to do complete streets ideology in the work that they do. Thank you, Galen Mook, for your perspective as the executive director of the Massachusetts Bicycle Coalition on the Caltrans interview that we're going to play now. Welcome to Bike Talk. My name is Lindsay Sturman, and we're here today to talk about Caltrans's new complete streets policy, which is incredibly exciting. So what is a complete street? A complete street is a street with bike lanes and wide sidewalks. It's basically a street that has infrastructure for people, not just cars. And Caltrans is a behemoth. It is a massive government agency. It's got a budget of like 15 to 16 billion dollars. It's budget is bigger than the entire state budget of 14 different states like south dakota and from up until now it's really just been about freeways and and, and expanding freeways and widening freeways and now it's going to get into the business of bikes so this is very exciting and we have tony dang who's the deputy director of sustainability at caltrans and we have a guest co-host dave campbell who is the advocacy director at bike east bay in oakland california uh, glad to be here glad to talk with Tony, uh, former colleague in the active transportation advocacy world. Uh, happy to see Tony providing leadership from Sacramento. And yeah, Caltrans has a new complete street policy. They had an old one and the new one is better in, in many ways. Is it good enough? Uh, let's find out. I've got some questions and comments for Caltrans and for Tony. And uh, let's jump in. Uh, it's a long policy and there's a lot to go over, uh, but we got here from where we were a couple of years ago, back in 2019, CalBike and many organizations were sponsoring SB 127, a bill that was the Complete Streets policy bill back then. And back then Caltrans wrote a letter of opposition stating that Caltrans already did Complete Streets when feasible, and that the bill was unnecessary. And so, and, and I'll say that Caltrans expressed back then, they had concerns about the costs. If, if Caltrans does complete streets with every project, the cost would be too great and Caltrans would have difficulty meeting their levels of good repair and good maintenance that they had at the time. So that's my question, first question. Uh, to take a little bit of a historical look, Tony, um, what has changed since 2019, back when Caltrans expressed opposition to a very similar goal and similar policy, and now to see this new exciting policy? Yeah, thanks, Dave. Thanks, Lindsay, for having me on the uh, podcast. So, I mean, I think we can all agree that a lot has uh, changed in a few years, uh, and I think Given uh, the changes that we've had at the leadership and executive level, as well as uh, the change in terms of the policy direction that we're seeing from 
the state and federal uh, administrations, uh, you know, we, we've been really working to pull together this policy to just align with uh, the direction that we're all headed. I think uh, front and center of the department's kind of uh, shift in culture and priorities is, you know, we're very much focused on, uh, you know, how we address safety and particularly uh, reducing fatalities and severe uh, injuries. We're very much committed to uh, leading uh, in the climate action space, and we're very much committed to uh, advancing equity within our work. And um, so, uh, you know, updating our complete streets policy to really reflect the direction and the leadership that um, we have within the department um, was one of the kind of motivating factors uh, behind uh, this new policy. Uh, Tony, uh, you're in a position, maybe it's not so new anymore, but uh, you've been there, you know, relatively a short time. Can you say a little bit more about the position you hold in the sustainability I think, division? of Caltrans and what your role will be in implementing the complete street policy going forward. Yeah, so um, my role in the sustainability office is to really help to, to lead and coordinate the complete streets across the department. I think that uh, as you're very well aware, um, you know, how we tackle complete streets facilities and addressing the needs of people walking, biking, taking transit and rail, they occur at every kind of phase of project development, right? And so we very much view this as a, a shared responsibility across our divisions. And um, my office's role is to, to really help our various divisions uh, make sure that they're living up to um, the policy as we've envisioned it. That's great. Uh, well, welcome again to Sacramento headquarters. Uh, so one of the big things that jumped out at me with the new policy is that it does allow exceptions to complete streets when district, district directors sign off on those exceptions. It doesn't say much more. In fact, it says very little more about that. Can you Tell us what you know at this point about when exceptions will be granted by the district directors. What is Caltrans thinking there? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that our approach with exceptions is, is really, I think, a common sense approach. Uh, I think we have some uh, existing uh, guidance out right now that helps guide our project teams around this, uh, embodied in our complete streets decision document that we'll be working to um, update as well. Uh, that really kind of guides kind of our capital projects. We're also developing some additional guidance uh, around our maintenance projects because we do view those as a real key opportunity to uh, integrate facilities for people walking, biking, and taking transit in a cost-effective uh, way. Um, in terms of what those exceptions look like, um, like I said, I think they're pretty common sense in the Complete Streets decision document. You know, if there's if if our pro if we have a project that's focus on uh, an expressway, uh, just repaving, not touching the interchanges, we're not really expecting, um, you know, complete streets facilities to be integrated there. Or if we're looking to uh, do a complete, uh, or sorry, a, a, a bridge erosion repair project, we're not really looking uh, to integrate complete streets at that time either. So, you know, projects where, you know, people walking and biking are prohibited uh, or where there's a very limited scope in terms of the repair that we're aiming to do, those are some of the common sense exceptions that we um, have outlined in our existing processes. Mm -hmm. And we do know that cost is often a big concern here. If the cost of complete street elements starts to 
look like the cost of the project. I feel like I hear that more than any other reason why complete streets is difficult to do. Can you say a little bit more about what is Caltrans, what is the, what is Caltrans thinking? What are the relative costs of complete streets versus the original project that, you know, that kind of informs us that the improvements or the changes for complete streets are becoming their own project and they're too big? Yeah, so I would say that it is very dependent, right? So uh, like I said, when we're talking about like maintenance projects and the opportunity to uh, go in when we're already doing a, a, a microsurfacing or a repavement project and, you know, adding a, a buffered bike lane or enhancing crosswalks um, and things like that, those are extremely cost effective and we don't really anticipate those to um, have huge cost implications. However, if we're looking at, um, you know, a, a location such as a rural main streets where there, there is a kind of a lot of uh, local travel in that corridor and needs to cross that corridor, um, that, that project may very well be uh, more expensive than if we were simply doing a project focused on, um, you know, drivers. And so it, it's really going to depend on the specific location. And I think what we've been uh, really communicating to um, the folks uh, in the districts and on our design teams is, you know, we're, we're really aiming to deliver the right project, right? So we wanna deliver the right project that meets the needs, uh, the mobility and safety needs of the local community. And that really uh, is dependent on much more robust uh, public uh, and stakeholder engagement than I think the department has historically engaged in. And I think that we as a department recognize that and are doing the best that we can to support our project teams uh, to uh, engage in that sort of community level uh, planning uh, and also to kind of bring that engagement through uh, throughout the project development process so that it's not just um, uh, focused uh, and kicked over to the planning side of the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great to hear Caltrans is becoming more of a community outreach, community engagement, community, a collaborative community partner, very much needed. I, I agree with that. When you say the words, Caltrans wants to find the right project. That I, I want to focus on that a little bit here. We want to, we definitely want to find good projects with our complete street projects, but we don't always get them right. And sometimes we have to stay with the project and keep iterating. And I think you started to talk a little bit about that just now, you know, recognizing that it's not just to go in and do something and then move on to the next project. Can you say a little bit more about? how willing Caltrans is to iterate, try things, stick around until they get it better before moving on to the next project? Yeah, I think it's definitely something that we are exploring. Uh, we know that, you know, local agencies have definitely blazed the path forward when it comes to, you know, quick build approaches wh where we do this iteration a lot more. Uh, I would say that the department is is really trying to, to tackle this. I think one example is through our um, our division of safety programs, and I'd love to connect you to, to Rachel Carpenter, who leads that work, but they're really looking um, at, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, implementing safety projects in exactly that way, where we're, we're able to kind of iterate uh, and provide that immediate safety benefit in the short term while we work towards a longer term solution. Yeah, I mean, Tony, I realize it's a lot of work. That's why we, that's why I do this kind of work as a bike ped in more and more transit safety advocate. 
and a lot more work than Caltrans has done to date. How is Caltrans feeling? A policy is one thing, and implementing it is another. And you know, doing it, it's a lot of work. Um, how is Caltrans going to resource itself to broaden the scope of what they do to include, you know, more community engagement and more, more features, more different projects, more programming for the work that they do. Yeah, I think there's a, a couple different pieces to this. And, you know, speaking as somebody who was on the other side of the table as, uh, you know, an active transportation advocate, I will say that now that I'm uh, on this side, you know, this, I will say, is the most momentum and commitment I've ever seen from the department when it comes to these issues um, at the executive level with our district directors, with our project teams. And I think that we collectively are very much committed to seeing this policy through. I think we all recognize that a policy is only as good as its implementation. And, you know, I, I, I totally get the, the skepticism um, that people may have, but I really do have full faith and confidence that our teams can rise up to, to this challenge. I think to your point around how we're aiming to resource meeting this needs, I think we're at a very interesting uh, moment uh, in the transportation space where the stars have aligned at the state and, and federal level uh, when it comes to supporting issues related to, to walking, biking, and transit and, and how they fit into the broader um, approach to tackling the climate crisis. Um, so I think that the resources will be there. You know, I think if you look at the state budget that was just released on Monday, there's huge, huge, huge investments that are being put forth when it comes to active transportation. 500 million just for the active transportation program alone, an additional 100 million for the highway safety improvement program focused on pedestrian and bicycle safety. Uh, and $150 million for a reconnecting communities program uh, that's really focused on um, something that our uh, new complete streets policy calls out, which is to, um, you know, how do we better serve uh, underserved communities that have been historically harmed and segmented by the transportation system. So I think that, you know, we're at a very interesting moment in transportation, and I think the stars really have aligned and, and provided an opening for uh, the resources to, to, to really match the, the ambition that we've set forth within this policy. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like Caltrans's human resources department is ready to start hiring a lot more people, not necessarily engineers for the t a lot of the type of people who've worked at Caltrans to date, but new people who who have specialties in areas that Caltrans hasn't had specialties, like community engagement, for example, or equity-focused work. Is HR ready to get to work, or is this more of a an opportunity to stipend or to you know compensate local groups who can help you with this outreach? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of HR, but I, you know, given uh, the huge influx of federal resources, the huge influx of uh, state resources that we we see coming down the pike to the department, we're we're acutely aware of the need to to recruit really strong talent, and we are very much. Uh, looking to to recruit talent that we've never had before. I know personally for for my team, uh, that's exactly the type of 
um, you know, um, folks that I'm looking for. I'm looking for uh, big thinkers, uh, folks who bring uh, skill sets uh, to help the, the department and make this, this big shift, whether it's with our complete streets policy, with our new approach to safe systems or what have you. I think that we are definitely uh, growing as an organization and shifting and pivoting our focus. And we very much want to be able to attract the right talent to help us uh, see this through. Yeah. I, I don't ask that light last question lightly as an advocate here in the East Bay. I'm hearing from lots of cities, they're having a hard time hiring more people and they get this too. They need to hire more people who have specialties in, in outreach and engagement, for example. But they're also struggling to hire more engineers and planners to deliver design and deliver projects. And I imagine that's gotta be true for Caltrans as well. And so, it's a reality check question for you, but it, it, maybe the follow-up question is, if you are struggling to bring on more people at the rate you need to, to do complete streets policies, what is plan B or what is your parallel track to make sure we're getting as much complete street products projects as we, as we expect? Yeah, I mean, I think the department, um, you know, despite the, the reputation our department has uh, in you know, active transportation spaces, our, our department has uh, historically uh, been able to deliver on a lot of different uh, priorities that um, you may not normally think that, uh, you know, our department would tackle. And so, I, I, I again, I have full faith and confidence that you know our department will rise to the challenge, whether it's to you know meet the demands of um, implementing broadband, which is something that our team tackles, or through the Clean California initiative, which uh, the the governor has put even more uh, faith in our ability to to deliver um, uh, be uh, beautification projects and and local grant programs and the like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've got one of those out right now that we were taking a look at. Yeah. Uh, all right, next question is around trainees. Again, you're, you mentioned a lot of new skills and new positions and new people you're looking for, as well as existing staff, engineers, planners, et cetera. What kind of trainings, particularly new trainings, are you envisioning are going to be needed? And wh what are some of the first ones you're looking to implement? Yeah, so I think one thing you'll notice in the policy in the intended results section is, you know, in order to achieve this really ambitious vision, um, we really want to be able to uh, work with our staff to maximize the use of the design flexibility that um, they have to achieve that vision and to support, support them in achieving that vision. So uh, we are working uh, coll collaboratively at headquarters uh, to, to roll out some trainings around design flexibility and really to help our uh, designers and engineers uh, really understand, you know, why are we why are we making this pivot and and how design flexibility uh, can really be used to help support uh, the development of projects that um, are much better aligned with kind of the direction that we're headed. Mm -hmm. All right, Tony, this is the last question. Let's end on a positive, super exciting, energetic note here. This policy uses the the language world class. And, as a, and it does it in more than one, one location, including the headquarters section and the division or the district section, uh, talking about world-class facilities, world-class best practices, et cetera. And I've asked for this many times. In fact, I've asked Caltrans for this in the past and they've glazed over in the past. Like, well, you know, 
our job is to be better than Nevada or maybe better than Oregon and, and not world-class. And now I'm, I'm seeing a different perspective. Was it hard to get world-class goals into this Fleet Street policy? And, and does Caltrans mean to be the best in the world when it comes to mobility? I, I would say that it was definitely an interesting internal discussion um, and it's in there. So, and I think that uh, we have the buy-in from uh, our leadership team, from our district directors, from our director uh, on this vision. So it is absolutely something we uh, are committed to uh, working towards achieving. All right, thanks, Tony. I uh, appreciate you letting me pepper you with questions and put you in the hot seat. Uh, looking forward to working with you and Caltrans on this Thank policy and all the projects and the funding coming along. Thanks so much, Dave. So as you can see, there's a new team at Caltrans, new ideas, very exciting time. And Dave Campbell and the East Bay Bike Coalition will be there to, you know, make sure that they uh, come through on all these great ideas. Next, we have a great interview done for Bike Talk by the co-editor of Chicago Streets blog with the president of the racial justice mobility organization, Equiticity. Streets blog in any city is a great resource for transportation news from a bike, pedestrian, or transit perspective. And we're glad to have this connection with John Greenfield in Chicago as he interviews Obai Reed. All right, I'm John Greenfield. I'm the co-editor of Streets Blog Chicago, transportation news website. And I'm here with Obai Reed from Equiticity, a mobility justice advocacy organization in Chicago. And uh, Obai, how are you doing today? Doing good, John. How are you? Good. It's good to see you. Good to see you as well. So, you know, we just wrapped up 2021. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what Equiticity was up to in 2021. Uh, Streets Blog, we've ran, we've ran a few stories about different bike tours and walking tours you folks put on. But um, let's just kind of run down some of the highlights of what happened with Equiticity in 2021. Do you want to start out for, for people who don't live in Chicago, just talk a little bit about what your organization does? Sure, happy to. Um, Equiticity is a racial equity movement, operationalizing racial equity through research, advocacy, programs, and community mobility rituals to improve the lives of Black brown and indigenous people in our society. And we do that work by harnessing our collective power. Um, we're a national organization. However, a lot of our work is concentrated in Chicago. And while we're a racial equity movement, purely focused or mostly focused on racial equity, we do work on sector specific or policy area specific racial justice frameworks. And the one that we're the most active on is mobility justice focused on the transportation sector. So it seems like a lot of things you did this year were putting on rides and tours. Uh, you also put out some reports. You guys published a report on uh, bicycle ticketing inequities in Chicago. Do you want to tell, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So um, our research partner, Dr. Jesus Barajas, he is a uh, assistant professor at the University of California at Davis. 
um, as a part of our mobility justice in Chicago research, he published um, an academic article titled Biking Where Black. And that research looked at two things. One is a geographic analysis of where the Chicago Police Department are ticketing cyclists or riding on the sidewalk. In addition, he did a geographic analysis of the distribution of bicycle infrastructure. So he looked at both of those analyses and, 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 and uh, has some really um, amazing findings that came out of, of, of that research. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to recall some of it right now. Black people are eight times more likely to be ticketed for riding bikes on a sidewalk than white people. The majority to, of- To clarify, I mean, the, it's eight times more likely are people in black neighborhoods. That's, that's right. Yep. People in white neighborhoods. Like, I mean, yeah. things like in Lincoln Park, which is an affluent majority white city, uh, a white neighborhood on the north side, there were something like five tickets written in a nine month period. And then in Austin, which is a majority black neighborhood on the west side, there was something like 395 tickets written in the same period. Um, so just to just to clarify that we're talking about like they it's they they didn't disclose what race the people were who got the tickets, but we can assume that yeah, most well. of the people in these neighborhoods were of the majority race. Yeah, yeah. No, really good point. Yeah. The 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 data that we have is based on the uh, demographics of the neighborhood, not the demographics of the person with the ticket. However, certainly we're able to glean um, who's getting the most tickets when the vast majority of ticketing is happening in predominantly black neighborhoods. Um, also a few other findings. There was less overall bike infrastructure in majority black neighborhoods compared mm -hmm. to white neighborhoods. On major arterial streets, cyclists, cyclists got citations 75% less often when the street had separated bike lanes compared, um, compared to infrastructure. And then lastly, if there had been separated bike lanes on every street with at least one ticket every year, there would have been an 8% decrease in tickets in majority black neighborhoods. Hmm. This, is, this is what the research showed now. I'm, I'm, and, and again, this research was executed by a professor at the University of California, Davis, mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Jesus Barajas. Now I'm gonna to talk to you as an advocate. What this research shows, black people are being ticketed at a higher rate, riding on the sidewalks, and the most often where we get tickets are on busy streets without infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We are riding on the sidewalk because we don't feel safe riding on the street. And we are doing what white people do in Lincoln Park and what any reasonable person should do. When they're on a street that's dangerous, they should get on the sidewalk, ride the sidewalk until they're able to ride on the street, especially when there's no infrastructure. The lack of infrastructure is contributing to racialized enforcement inequities being executed by the Chicago Police Department. And let's be clear, 
this the Chicago Police Department will tell you that this is a crime prevention strategy. They've mm -hmm. said they've said that publicly. Well, that does not work. There's ample evidence that it does not work. That approach does not work. That is what, what I would call it is stop and frisk. Stop and frisk has been proven ineffective by many uh, researchers. However, the city, the Chicago Police Department is using racialized enforcement inequities to reduce traffic, I mean, to reduce um, violence in our neighborhoods and it's ineffective. They're, they're, they're doing this as a pretextual stop to check for guns, check for drugs, check for warrants, and it doesn't work. So what you're saying is that, uh, I mean, basically anywhere in the city, it's illegal for people, all over, it's technically illegal for people over 12 to ride on the sidewalk, 12 or older. But the question is like the style of enforcement. What seems to be going on is that in majority white neighborhoods, um, or, you know, the police will say they, they use a different, they're pretty open about, we use a different enforcement strategy in areas that are ex experiencing violence. So they don't go, you know, they didn't quite say we are pulling over more people for minor infractions as a pretext to conduct searches for guns and drugs in a, you know, in hopes of preventing violence, but that seems pretty clear that's what they're doing. That's why they are enforcing the law differently in low crime areas and high crime areas. Yeah. Correct. Yep. That's, that's, that's correct. That's, that's, that's what I'm saying. Now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a fan of anything that'll increase police interactions between uh, black people and, and the police, given um, what we know about the police in our, in our city. Mm -hmm. um, they're racist, they're abusive, and they're corrupt. And that's not me talking, that's USDOJ, that's Chicago Tribune, that's New York Times, that's The Intercept, that's many um, uh, institutions that have studied the challenges that exist at CPD. And the idea that um, uh, we're executing a strategy right now that is increasing interactions with um, black and brown people and the police is, is troubling to say the least. However, that being said, it, it would be a little different in the event CPD did this everywhere. Mm -hmm. They don't. They don't. They don't stop white cyclists in in in, in Lincoln Park. They do it in Inglewood, though, mm -hmm. and it's and it's racially inequitable. It is not consistent with the mayor's commitment to racial equity. And what's really interesting about this issue to me is just how open the police are about it. Yep. And just like the question of whether this is even legal, like, is it legal for the police to just very openly say, like, we're not gonna ticket people for riding on the sidewalk. I mean, they, they haven't said it in so many words, but pretty much what they've said is, we don't ticket for riding on the sidewalk much in low income areas. I mean, sorry, low crime areas, but in high crime mm -hmm. areas, we use, enhanced enforcement as a crime prevention strategy. So yeah. like, do you think, I, I think this is something we've talked about in the past. Like, do you, do you think there's much hope that there could be some kind of lawsuit or something that, that would force the police to end this practice? Well, um, New York claimed stop and frisk was legal hmm. for a long time until it was challenged in court and it was decided it was illegal. 
So your question is the right question. We perhaps a um, uh, a legal challenge to this practice is what it'll take for us to determine: is it legal or illegal, and should it be illegal? I have a little more faith in the courts putting a stop to the practice than I do um, uh, uh, bureaucrats and, and others trying to do it themselves. And of course, this issue applies to, it's not just bicycling, it's walking, yeah. yep. a disproportionate amount of motorists who are stopped in Chicago, yep. black, um, they're less likely to be caught with contraband during the searches than than white motorists who are stopped. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the ACLU, they've had some success in like mm -hmm. getting the, the police to change their, in effect, stop and frisk policies. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it seems like this is a, something that ACLU could get behind. I, oh. should, I should probably like contact someone there about that and ask if they're interested in this. Yeah, I, I, I would love to hear their thoughts on it. Um, so re refresh my memory. Were there any other studies or reports you, you folks published this year that you want to talk about? Anything else happened? No, that was the only, that was the only research that we published in, um, 2021. There was, there was research that came out in 2020. Um, all of that research was qualitative research. Um, however, the only research published in 2021 was a biking wear black research. All right. Well, why don't we move on to a lighter subject, which is all the terrific group rides you folks hosted in communities of color to help build um, neighborhood solidarity and prevent violence and just, sure. you know, get people into, into biking and enjoying their neighborhood. Indeed. Indeed. The highlights of your, your uh, ride season. Yeah. Well, one of the big highlights is a ride in North Lawndale called the street love ride it starts and ends at um at uh on douglas boulevard in north londale which is a predominantly black uh low to moderate income neighborhood and we traverse through north londale and we go into another neighborhood a, a bordering neighborhood named little village which is predominantly brown and also low to moderate income. And there's while there's great work being done to connect the, the two neighborhoods, there's also been um, challenges um, with, with those two neighborhoods. So that ride sort of served the purpose of connecting the two neighborhoods, you know, inviting the two neighborhoods to ride together and explore uh, both communities. Um, that ride probably had upwards of about 200, 250 people. It's a night ride. Um, there's music on the ride. There's a lot of energy and excitement. And it's just a really beautiful experience to ride through a neighborhood and people on their porches from the windows are receiving us warmly and excited that we're coming through with all of this, this love and, um, and joy as we ride through the neighborhood. That ride is hosted by an organization in North Londale called Boxing Out Negativity. And Equiticity was one of the partners among many organizations um, around the city who were supportive of, of that ride. So that was, that was a huge highlight. 
another one um, that, that you participated in um, is our sort of our season finale ride. It is our Chicago Bike Collective ride. Mm -hmm. That ride starts at Palmasano Park, which is in a neighborhood called Bridgeport. And we mostly spend the ride touring um, a neighborhood called Pilsen, which is an incredibly historic neighborhood, predominantly brown, also low to moderate income with uh, beautiful architecture. And what they're probably one of the things that are most known for is um, beautiful murals throughout the neighborhood. Right. And this year, this year we had a gentleman who uh, leads um, public art tours in, in, in um, Pilsen. He was our uh, narrator on that ride, and we made several stops and learned about the um, history of, of the mural, uh, the artists, the impact of it, the, mm -hmm. what, 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 what the message is in the mural. That was a beautiful ride. And um, that ride is really focused on bringing Chicago's bike community together all of the various organizations from nonprofits to community bike shop to for-profit for bike shops to uh, operators you know, in, the, in, in Chicago, to all of the community-based organizations that are focused on, on cycling, especially in black and brown neighborhoods, mm -hmm. we bring them together. Together we celebrate um, another great season. And uh, we did that ride. Uh, in uh, early November, uh, that was our season finale for 2021. And it was a beautiful ride. And one thing that seems to be really cool in Chicago and I'm sure other cities nowadays is that there's kind of, you know, for a long period, when you talked about really big group rides in a city like Chicago, um, often these were things that were majority white. Um, now it seems like there's, you know, there's kind of some grassroots rides that are happening in all different parts of the city. Um, you know, even beyond Equiticity, there are, yeah. there are some other groups that put on big rides. They're primarily people of color. Yeah. Um, yes. what was the one I was thinking of that was like the, the what's the social uh, ride maybe the African-American? Uh, like streets Calling. That's it. Yeah. Streets, streets calling. Yeah, that's a massive ride. Yeah, and, and I think streets calling, I'm pretty sure it started in the midst of the pandemic. You know, cycling sort of skyrocketed, you know, during, during this pandemic. And uh, certainly black and brown people were a part of that wave in terms of just interested in, in getting out, socializing, mm -hmm. getting some fitness, hopping on a bike. Um, and, and that organization, um, they, 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 they doing some amazing work, um, and incredible work, uh, getting black people on bikes and, and, and doing it in, in huge numbers, hundreds and thousands of people coming out to their rides. It also seems like we're seeing more black run bike shops in, in Chicago. There's a, there's like a pop-up bike shop in a shipping container that opened in North Lawndale. There's yep. like another really similar thing in a shipping container, um, in Bronzeville. Yes. So, yeah. uh, you know, it seems like there, we might be really leading kind of a, reaching kind of a critical mass here where the demographics of cycling are changing in Chicago. And obviously you and Equiticity have been a huge factor in kind of changing people's attitudes towards like, sure. who, who wants to be on a bike? 
Yeah, I, I agree. I, Who I deserves good feel, like infrastructure? Yep, I agree. I, I think it does. Um, it does feel like we're we're getting to the point where um, black people as cyclists are, are are making a dent in our city. Um, the the bike the bike box in North Lawndale, um, that that organization that runs that 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 bike box is white men. And as a, a black gentleman who runs that bike box, the one in Bronzeville is uh, run by, or the, the name of the organization is Naughty Boy, um, two young black, black gentlemen. Um, they, they sell bikes, they sell skateboards, uh, really bringing um, culture to the work, which is incredibly important to get black and brown people on bikes. Uh, we have to reflect that in culture. Um, there's organizations like Think Outside the Block in Inglewood that, that puts on a couple rides a year, mm-hmm. getting hundreds, yeah, perhaps huge rides. Yeah, maybe maybe getting thousands out to their rides. So yeah, I agree. You know, part of the the historical challenge that we we faced was the city's position was this goes back you know maybe uh, ten years ago that resources needed to be concentrated where people will use them the most not where they're, where they could be needed, where they may be needed the most. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a racial equity tactician, my position is that resources should be focused where they're needed the most, not where they will be used the most. We can't use, we can't, we can't base these, de- these decisions on current demand models because there's a lot of things reducing demand in our neighborhoods from racialized enforcement inequities executed by the Chicago police department. So we don't want to ride a bike because we don't feel like, you know, we'll be treated fairly by the police to lack of infrastructure, to lack of uh, bike share in our neighborhoods, to lack of a bike culture, to lack of representation in the conversation around bike advocacy. All of those things serve to depress demand for cycling in our neighborhoods. We should use the resources as a vehicle to increase demand in our neighborhoods, not this approach that says, well, black people don't really ride, we'll focus the resources mm-hmm. in a predominantly white neighborhood. Yeah, a couple factors that spring to mind that have contributed to bike infrastructure and you know other kinds of street improvements, safety improvements being concentrated in more affluent majority white neighborhoods are, you know, in Chicago, we have wards, we have the, the cities divided into 50 little districts. Each one has an mm-hmm. alderman who's kind of like a mini mayor. And each ward gets $1.3 million a year in menu money, money that the alderman gets to decide how the money should be spent. Mm-hmm. So what that means is like, often bike infrastructure is paid with by that discretionary menu money. And, you know, in neighborhoods where there are already a lot of bike riders, and, you know, neighborhoods where people are more affluent, have more spare time to show up to community meetings and stuff, like there's going to be more people clamoring for bike infrastructure. And so the alderman is going to be more likely to spend money on the infrastructure in those kind of neighborhoods. Um, and then another factor that contributes to these inequities is just like in Chicago, the wealthier wards tend to be smaller in geographic area. They tend to be denser and more people living in nice high rises and things. Um, the more industrial south and west side wards tend to be bigger with a lot more square mileage. So if you've got a limited number, a limited $1.3 million in every ward, 
to spread over the ward, you know, you got to do things like repaving streets and fixing sidewalks and street lamps and stuff. If you're an alderman of like a huge ward on the Southeast side, you might be more reluctant to, you just got, you know, the same amount of money to spread over a much wider area. So that's why people like, uh, you know, there's an alderman named Matt Martin, who's been advocating for changing that system um, mm -hmm. so that if a, if a ward is why is larger, that it gets more menu money. And that's, that's one thing that might help encourage sure. more bike infrastructure on the South and West side, but definitely, definitely what you folks are doing with these group rides and just generally advocating for the value of bicycling and communities of color, you know, that, that really helps politically to get, Yep. people more interested in spending money to improve safety yes yeah part part of what we're doing is 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 creating new bike advocates right you know when people are participating in these community rides and becoming more enthused and more confident as a cyclist and, and willing to ride more and more they start to notice the inequities they see the inequities and then they want to go and advocate for the things that they need in their neighborhoods to ride more often. So part of what we're doing is using these bike rides as vehicles to mobilize people and help them understand the work that we're doing to grow mobility in our, in our neighborhoods. We want to help them understand the problems and the potential solutions. You know, one thing that kind of occurred to me today that I think is relevant to this discussion is you know, people have talked about like people who are in a more, you know, who have more societal headwinds, um, women, people of color, older people, young people, um, you know, it's more important for them to have bike facilities that feel really safe. So we're talking about, you know, protected bike lanes, side paths. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think for really effective bike advocacy, it should be less people like you and me who are, I'm not saying like we shouldn't keep doing our jobs, of course, but, right. but like, <laughs> right. you know, a lot of people who are speaking out saying like, we need, we need more protected bike lanes are people like you mm -hmm. and me who are, you know, mm -hmm. experienced urban cyclists. We, yep. we feel pretty comfortable biking wherever, but it would mm -hmm. be really powerful if, if more people saying like, I, you know, we, we should be building protected bike lanes are, are the people who want to bike, but don't yep. yet feel comfortable doing it. So it would be great if, uh, you know, just more normal people who aren't bike enthusiasts say like, can we build a network so that I can feel comfortable using my bike for transportation? Like, I know there's all these economic and health and environmental benefits. Mm -hmm. Like, can we make this happen so that my neighborhood can enjoy these benefits? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I agree that, um, I, yeah, you, you said a lot that I that I, I I take to heart. I really like the way you put it, society headwinds, um, because in some ways it is um, it is inequitable to deliver resources based on how racialized groups um, communicate with um, with policymakers. Mm -hmm when black and brown piece, people are facing significant societal headwinds, we don't have that luxury of going to those meetings and uh, you know, making the calls and writing the letters, right? We just, we, we're facing a societal headwinds 
that make us uh, prioritize going to work, not getting fired, not not getting not being victimized by you know an act of violence, and mm-hmm. you know ensuring that our children are in a in a good quality school. So it's in, in some ways it's not fair to 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 base our distribution of the resources on how people at the neighborhood level engage with policymakers. And then the other thing in, in, in what you're saying is this reality that um, rather, um, you know, a key segment of our population acts for it or not, we know, you and I know, mm-hmm. planners know, transportation practitioners know that in neighborhoods where there's higher rates of traffic violence that are predominantly black and brown, predominantly low to moderate income, where there's not much of a bicycle culture, the, the, the right infrastructure is protected. We know that. That's the right thing to do. So to put, put the onus on those people who are facing those societal headwinds just, just feels... Um, it just it does not it does not feel like to me an equitable approach. Now, now John, I agree with you. We we need more people who are willing to go out and advocate mm-hmm. for what they need to to use other modes of travel, especially um, uh, bikes. However, um, the commissioner of CDOT knows what's needed in our na- in our neighborhoods is barrier protected bike lanes, mm-hmm. and that's what she should be building. And the thing about barrier protected bike lanes is like they have benefits for all road users, not just bicyclists. Like if you take a road that has too many lanes so that that encourages dangerous driver speeds, you know, if you, if you narrow it by converting a couple lanes to protected bike lanes, that helps calm traffic. So, you know, less, less motorists are crashing. You've got, um, shorter crossing distances for pedestrians. They don't have to cross so many lanes of traffic. So, you know, it's, it's a kind of a win, win, win for safety. Yeah. And, and you, you bring up, you know, a really good point around how infrastructure could reduce traffic violence. That that's a racial equity issue in Chicago. Traffic violence is highest in predominantly black and Brown neighborhoods. Right. We should be using we should be using bike infrastructure and other forms of infrastructure to reduce traffic violence. And, and also, John, you, you, you're probably aware of this, there's potential for transportation infrastructure to reduce interpersonal violence. And interpersonal violence is highest in black and brown neighborhoods. There, there was, there was um, work done in Medellin, Colombia, where transportation infrastructure was executed in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, after it was executed, there was some research done and, and um, the finding was that the infrastructure helped contribute to reduced violence. Mm-hmm. We should be using infrastructure the same way. We should use infrastructure in black and brown neighborhoods to address our most pressing concerns. For so us, that, sorry, go on. For us, that's violence. Um, uh, unemployment, you know, poverty, and uh, public health. For that study in Colombia, was there, did they have any theories about what the connection was between safer street design and reducing inter- interpersonal violence? 
I would need to look a little bit deeper. Um, let's 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 me and you do a part two of this interview. All right, <laughs> and we can dig into uh, to some of that research. There's there's other research that um that that, that I I want to point people to, especially coming out of um, out of South America. Um, I'm I'm not sure what the connection was. I, I will tell you with full confidence that the research showed transportation this this infrastructure this transportation infrastructure in this particular neighborhood contributed to reducing violence. All right, I'll have to check that out. I, I can send it to you. All right. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground here. Um, so you guys really accomplished a lot of stuff with Equiticity this year. And we did. Uh, I know there's some stuff on the horizon. So we'll look forward to seeing that. Thank um, you. All right. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk. And uh, thanks for everything you're doing to help promote, you know, safer, healthier neighborhoods in Chicago and beyond. Thank you. Thank you, John. Always appreciate you and the support of Streets Block Chicago. Uh, thank you all for the partnership and I uh, look forward to riding with you again soon. All right. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Oh, get that car out of my way. I want to ride my bike today. It gets me fit, it gets me there. I won't go sticking up the air. Bye.